A.W. Tozier is quoted as saying, when a man of God dies, nothing of God dies. When a man of God dies, nothing of God dies. He's highlighting that we are all tools in God's hands. He doesn't need any of us to help him out with his mission in this world. And I trust that most of us would probably amen that intuitively. But do we really believe it? When push comes to shove and things get challenging, do we really believe that God doesn't need us to help him? Some may say, okay, that's maybe true of me. But what would the church look like without the early fathers? The Apostle Paul who wrote this book. Tertullian and Augustine. You're more of a fan of the reformers. People who brought the church back to the gospel. Names like Luther and Calvin, Tyndale and Zwingli. Or more recently, names like Bunyan, Lewis, Edwards, Piper, MacArthur. The names go on and on. Do we really believe that God doesn't need our help to accomplish his purpose in this world? I'd encourage you to consider that this morning because I would wager it's a temptation for all of us. Just as it was a temptation for the church in Corinth. This week's text addresses when faithful ministry leads to the sin of factionalism in the church. Divisions and factions over the ministers that God has blessed his church with. Let's read the text together. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. And what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say they were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Let's pray. Father, it's such a joy and a privilege to get to sing praises to you, to celebrate what Christ has done for us and in us. And yet we also recognize that that work is yet continuing. The sanctification of our minds and our hearts, the putting to death of sin, is still going on in each of our lives. So I pray that as your word goes forth this morning, as I speak, as your spirit works, that you would change hearts and minds, that you would encourage us and challenge us with these words from 1 Corinthians. Lord, give me the ability to be faithful to the text. Help me to not say more than it says and help me to not say less. Lord, use it in the life of our church in this season. Use it in our individual lives to conform us to the image of Christ. We are dependent upon your word. We're dependent upon your spirit. Lord, we're asking you to do what only you can do this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Well, as I mentioned last week, Paul began the book of 1 Corinthians speaking to a divided and broken church 
with encouraging celebratory words. He celebrated what God had done in them. He encouraged them to continue to look for God's faithfulness in their church. And now he shifts to his first issue, the issue of divisions over leadership in 1 Corinthians. It's interesting to note that rather than starting off by addressing their questions, which he'll get to in chapter 7, he first has a more urgent matter that he wants to address with them, these divisions within their church. Paul's logic goes something like this, and you can see it in the text this morning. Verse 10, he gives them an urgent request, an urgent request, something he wants them to do in their church. He goes on in verses 11 and 12 to describe a discouraging report that he's received about the church. The very reason that rather than jumping into their questions, he feels the need to explain a few things before he gets to that. And then lastly, we see a surprising response in verses 13 through 17. A surprising response to these divisions over leadership that he's seeing in the first Corinthian church or the church in Corinth. But just like last week, Paul transitions to the body of the letter. But a first thing I want to note here is the tone with which Paul brings this challenge to them. Look at verse 10 as we begin this urgent request. Look at the tone of his request. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This appeal is an urgent plea, a request. It's almost as if he's pleading with them to listen to what he's going to say to them. He stresses both the urgency and the gentleness with which he's going to bring this request, this command to them. He says, I appeal to you. And then he uses a term of endearment. I appeal to you, brothers. Now, this can be brothers or sisters, Okay, it's everybody in the church. And one of the things you'll note over the course of the next few weeks as we walk through 1 Corinthians is Paul is going to use this term brothers 38 times in the book of 1 Corinthians. He's going to approach them with gentleness in spite of the fact that they need some stern words. He's going to say, brothers, listen to me. I care about you. Listen to me. And then lastly, he says, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, he looks back to his introduction and he again cites the source of the unity in the church. He reminds them they're all aligned around one person and one gospel. He appeals in the name of Christ. Hopefully they should be listening. And it's worth noting here that Paul addresses an extremely divisive divisive topic in the church, both gently and lovingly, and also urgently and directly. He doesn't miss words. He doesn't dance around the subject, but he also approaches these brothers in Christ extremely tenderly. I think that's a worthwhile encouragement for all of us when it comes to challenging and encouraging our brothers and sisters in Christ. But what is the essence of this request? What is it that he's asking them to do? Look back at verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. He says a positive, you should agree. A negative, don't be divided. And then he goes back to a positive and he says, instead, be united in mind and in, uh, excuse me, Anyway, you see, you see the verse there, <laughs> excuse me. There be no divisions among you, be united in the same mind, same judgment. That's the word I'm looking for. Thank you. First, he starts out with a positive. He says, agree with one another. Literally, this term means say the same things. 
Don't be saying different things. Don't be arguing with one another. Don't be fighting with one another. It's the idea of a verbal external affirmation of the same words. We go, okay, that's, that's probably possible. If we're speaking and quarreling and having divisive words, I, we can probably quit saying those things. We can try to say the same things. He ratchets it up a notch. He says, let there be no divisions among you. This is a deeper reality. This isn't just an external conformity. This is divisions. He said, let there be no divisions. The word here is schismata. In a book that's going to talk a lot about charismata, the gifts of the spirit, he says, first, I need to address these schismata, these schisms, these cracks or tears, these divisions that are ripping your church apart. He says, you're not to be divided. You're not to be broken into different segments and different cliques as a church. It's kind of like how I envision, I don't know how many of you, this was your experience, a high school lunchroom. I don't know how many of you have been in a high school lunchroom like the one I was in, where you've got all the different classes and you've got all the different cliques. Sure, you're in one room together, but this table is the football players, and that table is the math people, and that table is the band people, and that people... And you know that they're all part of the same school... But it's very, very clear that they don't talk to each other. It's very, very clear that they don't intermingle with each other. They're all at their own individual tables. And I imagine that's probably what it felt like to walk into this church on a Sunday morning. Like, I know this is all one church, and I know we're gathered and we're singing, but it's very, very clear that these people don't talk to these people. I don't mean that literally. It's not that the north side people don't talk to the south side people, okay? I'm going to use the illustration later and bear with me on it, okay? The point is, they're divided. There are these schisms, there are these cracks and tears. And it's worth noting that these can probably occur either intentionally or unintentionally within a church. It's easy for us to divide ourselves intentionally. It's also possible for us to unintentionally divide ourselves and not to speak with people whom we happen to not agree with. So don't let there be divisions. Much harder than to just say the same things externally. And then he ratchets it up one more notch. I love the way he finishes this. He says, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Be united. What does this mean? I love the way the NASB translates it. If you're reading out of the NASB Bible, it says made complete. It conveys the idea of undoing or mending back together the divisions that are very apparent within the church. He says, be united, be made complete, be brought back together. And then he explains it in two ways. He said, you need to have the same mind and you need to have the same judgment. Now talk about a high standard for unity in the church. You need to have the same mind. What does this look like? He doesn't go on to explain it in tremendous detail, but I think he gives us more information when he writes the books of Philippians. Turn to the right in your Bibles to Philippians. First and second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and look at chapter two. I'm going to read an extensive section in this, and you're going to notice two terms. You're going to notice the same mind, and you're going to notice humility. Look for both of these things in Philippians chapter two, verses one through eight. So if there is any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Now he's going to explain it. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, 
who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Did you pick up on those terms? He said, have the same mind, have the mind of Christ. What was the mind of Christ? He was humble. He was humble to the point of coming down and condescending to live on this earth and to die on our behalf. And he says, have that same mind in yourselves. He says, the key to the unity that I'm calling you to in this church is to have Christ's humble mindset. To have a humility that doesn't look down on other Christians, that doesn't exalt yourself as more important than you are. He says, have this same mind, the mind of Christ. He also says, have the same judgment. Have the same judgment. Evaluate and judge things in a like-minded way. Now, what does this look like? I'm, again, going to have us turn a bit to the right to the book of Ephesians in our Bibles. Ephesians chapter 4, another book written by the Apostle Paul. When calling this church to unity, it's interesting to note what he says in verses 1 through 6 of Ephesians chapter 4. I, therefore... A prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, notice the similarity, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then he says this, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. When calling the church of Ephesus to walk in accordance with the gospel that they proclaim, he calls them back to the truth of God's word and the clarity of what they've declared in their doctrine. He says the key to unity is doctrinal and gospel alignment. The key to unity is to align yourself with the word of God. This means having the same judgment. If we're all reading the same book, if we're all aligning ourselves to the truth of what God has declared in it, we're going to get closer and closer to the same judgment with one another. The more we look like Christ, the more we'll look like one another and have the same judgment and the same mind. Here's the principle. Unity in the church requires a choice to pursue humble like-mindedness with other Christians. It's a choice. It requires a choice to pursue humble, like-mindedness with other Christians. I don't know how much, how many of you are band nerds, and I was a band nerd. I'm not like, that's not me calling out anybody, okay? My wife is a music teacher, all right? We love music. Um, One of the things that you'll notice in a band or an orchestra, and I don't think they use an actual tuning fork anymore, uh, I think it's probably digital, but what happens is when the band begins to get ready to play or to practice, Um, there's a tuning fork, and it used to actually be a fork that you would hit on something and it would ring out a particular note. Now I think it's digital. But the, the point is, they hold it up, and everybody in the band is supposed to tune their instruments to align with that one instrument. And the closer they get to that tuning fork, the closer they get to that pitch, the closer their instruments will align with each other. Now, if if one person in the band decides, well, no, I have perfect pitch, I'm not going to match the tuning fork, I'm just going to do my own thing, Actually, the irony is they get farther and farther away from the people that are sitting next to them, and the band sounds worse, even though their pitch may be perfect. 
Or if there's divisions and there's this group over here, you know, the brass instruments are saying, we're going to tune ourselves to this. And the, the woodwinds are saying, we're going to tune ourselves to this. What you end up with is you end up with a band that sounds terrible. Because the closer we tune our hearts to the mind of Christ and our judgments to the word of God, the closer to the tuning fork we all get and the closer to each other we all get. Unity in the church requires a choice to pursue humble like-mindedness with other Christians. And consider for a moment with me here, why is unity so critical? Why does it the New Testament continually stresses this theme? I'm going to another passage in Scripture, and I want to look at four fruits of unity that we see in John chapter 17. Just a couple of books to the left in your Bibles. Turn to John chapter 16, or 17, excuse me. John chapter 17, verse 20. Here, when John is recording Christ's priestly prayer for believers that would come after his disciples, I love the words he uses here in 20 through 21. He sets it up by, this, by saying to them, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, the generations of Christians that would come after the disciples. And then he notes our first fruit of unity. One of the fruits of our unity, one of the reasons it's so important is it reflects the unity of the Trinity. Look at verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The unity of the church bears the fruit of reflecting the unity of the Trinity. The unity of the Father and the Son and the Spirit in submission, but operating in unity with one another, we're called to reflect that. He goes on in verse 22 and talks about displaying the glory of the Son. Look at verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. Second fruit that comes from the church being united is it displays the glory of the Son. It displays that Christ has changed our hearts that the glory that Christ has been given from the Father has been given to us as the church, and we're united behind one head of the church, Christ Jesus. Thirdly, in addition to reflecting the unity of the Trinity and displaying the glory of the Son, he shows that it demonstrates the love of the Father. Look at verse 23. And in them, or I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Unity in the church demonstrates the love of the Father, first for the Son, but then for those that are in Christ. One of the fruits of unity is demonstrating the love of the Father to the world. And then lastly, drawing the watching world. We sung about that. Look at verses 24 through 26. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. The unity of the church draws a watching world to Christ. The unity with which we display practically in our church will make a watching world wonder what is different about those people. We can't get along. Why can they get along? I love the way John MacArthur puts this. 
He says, few things demoralize, discourage, and weaken a church as much as bickering, backbiting, and fighting among its members. And few things so effectively undermine its testimony before the world. The truth of the matter is that unity in the church requires a choice to pursue humble, like-mindedness with other Christians. From there, Paul goes into greater detail about what the issue was. Turn back to 1 Corinthians to the right in your Bibles and take a look at verse 11. It talks about both the nature of the disunity and how he found out about it, and we see a discouraging report. Verse 11 says, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Now, we don't know a tremendous amount about Chloe's people. Probably she was a wealthy or well-to-do lady who had servants that were doing business in other communities. And at some point, they had come to the city of Corinth. They'd seen the church in Corinth, and they'd brought back this report, and Paul had learned about it. The point is that when they went out, the fighting in this church was so obvious and so severe that even these guests that were traveling through could sense it. It was palatable in this church. The content of the report is he says, there is quarreling among you. There is fighting. There is battling. I don't need to define quarreling for you, right? Those of you with little children probably had a quarrel on your way to church this morning. Because one of the things that we note is quarreling is a sign of immaturity. Quarreling is a sign of immaturity. James 4 verses 1 through 3 says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. To work this out in your own ideas and your own plans and your own desires. And that was causing quarrels in this church. Now, he goes on to explain precisely what he means. I love it. Verse 12, he says, what I mean is, right, just just to be really, really clear with what he's talking about to this church, what I mean is, he follows and says, I, or each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Paulos, I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Now, he doesn't go on to say precisely why the different groups were following these different leaders. But bear with me here a moment as I attempt to read between the lines from other things we read in Scripture, Okay. Put yourselves in the feet of this church. You can almost hear them say this. Let's, let's assume for a moment that this group over here follows Paul. They're like, we, we follow Paul. I mean, talk about doctrinally astute. Paul wrote all of these amazing books, right? I mean, he used to be a Pharisee, don't you know? He knows the Old Testament like the back of his hand. Did you hear about that letter on the gospel that he wrote to Galatia? Wow. He is so doctrinally astute. He is so amazing in the way he writes. We're with Paul, right? This group here is like, well, you guys may have your theologians in their ivory towers, but we're with Paul or Apollos. He's a really eloquent preacher, haven't you heard? Remember his sermons in Ephesus? People still discuss how vivid and spirit-filled his preaching was there. And talk about bold. Since coming over here to Achaia, so many people have been helped by Apollos' teaching. He even debates Jews in public about Jesus. They may have their theologian, Paul, but we're with Apollos. In case you're wondering, I didn't make that up. Read Acts verse 18, or chapter 18. All of that is said about Apollos. 
Over here, you've got the people that are like, no, 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 no. You've got your preacher, you've got your theologians, but we're with Cephas. We're with Peter, right? I mean, he was the first pastor after all, right? Have you heard the story about how Jesus told him personally to, to shepherd my sheep, to tend my flock? I mean, he learned how to shepherd directly from Christ. How do you beat that? He's the consummate pastor. You may have your preacher and your theologians. We've got Cephas. We've got Peter. Right? You can feel the divisions coming out in the church. And then there's always the purists, you know? The ones that always have the right answer, but their smugness betrays their motives. Right? Well, we just follow Christ. We just get our answers directly from Christ himself. And while that is the right answer, I think he includes it here in criticism of this group as well. The answer may be right, but their attitude is not. It is possible to be right theologically, but still wrong in motivation. It is possible to be right theologically and wrong in your divisive spirit. They say, we just follow Christ. As a way of saying, all of you are second-class citizens following Peter and Apollos and Cephas. It's ridiculous. And I think there's an appropriate warning for us here. It's possible as an independent Bible church to have this sort of mentality. Other churches don't quite have it right. Other denominations are off and they've, they've got their doctrinal statements and they've got their red tape and they've got their constitutions and all of that. We've got the real corner on the market. We just follow Christ. The point was, or the problem was, their personal preferences about preachers or theology or doctrine or whatever the case might be had risen to the level of loveless Christian superiority. They looked down on everybody else in the church and every other church because they weren't at their level. Their fighting was petty and unjustified. Here's the principle. Unity in the church requires the death of church leader idealism and idolatry. Unity in the church requires the death of church leader idealism and idolatry. It's not about the men. It's not about the people. It's about what God is doing. It's kind of like we're, we're in the fall, right? We're headed into the football season. It's kind of like football assistant coaches, right? This fall, we'll have a number of different coaches on the field. You'll have a tight ends coach, and you'll have a wide receiver coach, and you'll have a quarterback coach, and you'll have all of this sort of thing, and then you've got all the players in those positions that report to that coach. But imagine the absurdity of that team saying, well, I just follow the wide receiver's coach, right? I just follow the quarterback's coach. I'm not worried about what any of the rest of you are doing. I'm not worried about what the head coaches. I'm just following this guy. Well, hopefully that guy is just delivering what the head coach has put together for the plan. But it's ridiculous for them to say, I just follow this guy. I'm not really a part of the greater team. I'm not really worried about what the greater goal is here. Kind of like what was going on in this church. Let me attempt to give us four practical points that relate to this. Four practical things, warnings in your life to consider on this theme. First, be cautious idealizing any preacher, particularly those you can't know personally. Now, I know, I know, Dimitri stood up here two weeks ago, and he told you that he loves John MacArthur. There was nothing wrong with that. I'm not calling out Dimitri. I'd be more direct. He knows that. Like, but I did warn him I was going to say this. 
But be cautious idealizing, particularly in this internet age where we can listen to any number of people without seeing their walk and their lives. Be careful too thoroughly aligning yourself with one preacher, especially if you can't know them personally. Second, be sure to quote and read the words of God before the words of gifted men. Be sure that you're reading and quoting the word of God before the words of gifted men. I'm a big fan of books. I hand out a lot of books to people. There's good stuff and there's people that are worth reading, but first and foremost, the word of God aligning us to that is the priority. Be cautious if your intuition is to quote your study Bible notes over the text itself. Number three, remember that no matter how gifted or popular a pastor is, they are fallen and need the gospel just as much as you. No matter how gifted, no matter how popular, no matter how helpful a pastor is in this church or somewhere else, they are fallen and need the gospel just as much as you do. That's part of the reason that one of our core values as a church is plurality leadership. We don't invest all the authority the church has in one person who can dictate what all the decisions are as a church. Because every single one of the leaders that, the, that Christ has ever given the church was fallen. Our past leaders were fallen. Our current leaders are fallen. Our future leaders will be fallen. And they will need the gospel just as much as you do. And then lastly, prioritize clear gospel proclamation. Even if you disagree in some other matters. It's easy to become critical of other churches in town that we know that we differ with on certain theological points. And I'm not saying those things don't matter. But if they're clearly preaching the gospel, celebrate that. That the gospel is going forth with clarity and with boldness in our community. Prioritize gospel proclamation. Now, in case some of you are worried at this point that we're just bashing preachers and pastors, that would be a really strange thing for me to do uh, as one of both. Uh, We'll cover their significance more in the next few weeks. But here Paul addresses the inappropriate hero worship that was dividing this church. But thankfully, God doesn't just diagnose their situation. He's not just a diagnostician. He doesn't just reveal the problem to them. He offers a solution, and we see a a surprising response in verses 13 through 17. He starts off with three revealing questions that need very little explanation, but we're going to walk through them. First, is Christ divided? Well, hopefully the resounding answer to that would be no. He's going to use the illustration of Christ's body through the gifts of the Spirit later on in 1 Corinthians. But Christ is not divided. Christ is not like, well, I'm with Apollos. You know, Paul and, and Cephas, not so big a deal, but I'm with Apollos. So Christ isn't divided. Was Christ crucified for you? This really gets to the heart of the matter, doesn't it? Who is your Savior? Was Paul crucified for you or was it Christ? Who died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin? Was it that preacher you really like? Was it that theologian you really like? Or was it Jesus Christ himself? And then lastly, were you baptized in the name of Paul? And it almost like he seems to be saying, I hope not, right? Like there's a chance this could have been going on in this church. You were named in the, you were baptized in the name of Paul. Hopefully you were named, baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He points to the sufficiency of Christ and the cross. He's not demeaning these teachers, but he's saying Christ is the point. The cross is the point. I love his little diatribe here in verses 15 and 16, right? 
I thank God that I baptized none of you, except Crispus and Gaius. You can almost hear him here saying this to the one that's writing it down for him, so that no one may say that they were baptized in my name. And I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. Some of you can probably resonate with the way he feels right here. And I wrestled a little bit with this this week. Like, what? Why this little section? Why these three verses devoted to what feels like a tangent? Why does it get so much discussion? Why make this distinction? Why didn't the Holy Spirit edit this part of the book out? And then I ran into a talk by D.A. Carson that clarified so much on this for me that I just appreciated the way he put it. Paul describes baptism as both secondary and subsequent to the preaching of the gospel here. Did you notice that? It's subsequent to it. Paul came to preach the gospel first, that people would be saved, and then they were baptized. Secondly, he said, I came to preach the gospel, not to baptize. He's not saying baptism isn't important. He did some of the baptizing. But he's saying, my mandate, Christ's mandate on me was first and foremost to preach the gospel because that is how people are saved. You'll run into something called baptismal regeneration out there in theological circles. It says, baptism is a part of the saving act in your life. I don't believe that's what Paul is saying here. Saying, I came to preach the gospel because that is what saves people. Baptism is a necessary step of obedience. We have a baptism coming up in the next few weeks. If you haven't been baptized, I'd encourage you to take that step of obedience to Christ now. But first, we preach the gospel, we accept the gospel, and then we worry about baptism. He goes on and talks about how he preaches. For the Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. It says, first, two things, not with words of eloquent wisdom lest the, Christ, or the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. He says, not with words of eloquent wisdom. We're going to talk more about this in the coming weeks, but first of all, he says, I came to preach the gospel simply. He's not disdaining words of eloquent wisdom. He's not putting down Apollos because he was a gifted speaker, but he's saying the power of the gospel is not found in the eloquence of the preacher. Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. God used the simple lack of speaking ability that Paul had to convert this church to Christ. He's saying it's not about the preacher. He points again to the centrality of Christ in the gospel. We're going to talk about that over the next few weeks. Excuse me. Here's the point that I think he's making here in his surprising response, and this is critical for us to keep in mind. Unity in the church means keeping our eyes off ourselves and on our Savior. Unity in the church means keeping our eyes off ourselves and on our Savior. Off our own gifted abilities, off our spiritual gifts, as he's going to talk about later, that are given for the edification of the church, that are important and they matter, and we're going to talk about it. But when we get so focused on ourselves, we take our eyes off Christ. When we get so focused on the preachers and the pastors and the theologians we like, we take our eyes off Christ. He says, Unity in the church means keeping our eyes off ourselves and on our Savior. Let me give you three practical applications from this point. First, celebrate the giver more than the gift. It is really easy to celebrate someone's giftedness. Later in the chapter, he's going to talk about the gifts of the Spirit, these gifts that God gave to enable us to do faithful ministry. And it's easy to be like, that person is really gifted, and to idolize that. In Ephesians, he talks about the gifts being the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the pastor teachers. 
these gifts that God has given the church, do we celebrate the giver more than the gifts he's given us? Men, teachers, women, abilities, the list goes on and on. Celebrate the giver more than the gift. Second, humbly and joyfully accept your Christ-given role in the body. Paul wasn't refuting with Christ, well, I don't get to baptize anybody. What's the deal? He said, Christ sent me for this purpose. I'm going to humbly accept the role that God has given me in his church. At this point, I think it's probably appropriate to address the kids. If you are in our church and you are under 18, let me just tell you, if you've accepted or accepted the, the gospel and if you've accepted the, the gift of God's mercy through the cross, then you've been given a spiritual gift and you have a vital role in, in this church. The gifts of the Spirit, the roles that God gives us in the church, do not wait until you graduate and turn 18. If you are in this church and you have put your faith in Christ, you have an ability that the rest of us need no matter how old we are. We need you. We need your participation. We need your involvement. We need your gifts. Lastly, one final application. Never leave the gospel behind. To this church that thought they had moved on to higher knowledge and better things, Paul ushers them back to the simplicity and the centrality of the gospel and the cross. He says, don't leave the gospel. The gospel wasn't just for your salvation. The gospel is a day in and day out reminder of how you pursue Christ in this life. Don't leave the gospel behind. And that's Paul's reminder. That's how Paul addresses these divisions over leadership in the church. This urgent appeal saying, humbly pursue unity in Christ. Humbly pursue, willfully choose unity in your church. He says, don't idealize and idolize pastors and preachers and teachers in your fellowship. Christ is the center. Christ is the point. He says, focus on Christ, not people and their abilities. Doesn't mean there isn't a place for spiritual gifts. We're going to talk about that later. It doesn't mean the gifts aren't given according to measure. We're going to talk about that later. But he says, the point is Christ's sufficiency. He is enough for you. He is enough for your church. The key point for this week, and I would say our key for unity is, prioritize Christ's sufficiency over human ability. Are we prioritizing Christ's sufficiency over human ability? Are we first and foremost dependent upon Christ and his sustaining of his bride, the church? Or do we look to human abilities, God-given or otherwise, to accomplish things that only he can accomplish? Remember I said that 1 Corinthians was going to be relevant to our current season as a church? I think you all understand what I mean. We need to be dependent upon Christ. It's not about the gifted leaders able and gifted as they are. It's about Christ's role and Christ's sufficiency in Christ's church. A while back, I read a book by Christopher Ash on burnout in ministry. And with some, with some of the staff, I found it a helpful read, an encouraging read. 
I love the way he puts this. He, he struggled with burnout in his own life, and so as a result, he and his wife decided that there was one thing that they would consistently remind each other of when they tried to do everything in their own strength, and they thought that the church was dependent upon them to accomplish what God wanted for it. They would always say this to each other. They would say, remember, there is only one Savior of the world, and it is not you, and it is not me. Remember, there is only one Savior of the world, and it is not you, and it is not me. God is not dependent upon any of us. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the fact that you are not dependent upon fallen and failing people. Each of us makes every effort to live in conformity with your word to try to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but we admit that we are entirely dependent upon you. In this particular season as a church, looking for the next senior leader of this church, we desperately need you. We need you to show up and do what only you can do. Lord, help us to not be dependent upon our own abilities. Help us to not be dependent upon our own leaders and our own things that we can accomplish in our own strength and in the flesh. Lord, help us to be dependent first and foremost upon you. Lord, remind us to be in prayer and asking for your power because we know that the power of the gospel isn't found in eloquent words. It's not found in lofty speech and the wisdom of man. It is found in the person and work of Christ. Make us dependent upon you. In Christ's name, amen.